Hey, my name is Angela and welcome to the Dim Sum Diaries. In today's episode, I just wanted to share some of the lessons that I've learned from my motivation class that I've been taking this semester. If you listened to episode 6, you'll know that I'm currently taking a human motivation class in the psychology department at McGill, which is being taught by my favorite professor, Richard Kessner. I am a huge fan of Professor Kessner's courses just because he makes them super applicable to everyday life and includes so many of his funny personal anecdotes and real-life examples to really help the content sink in. I actually just had my midterm on Friday, so that's why everything is still fresh in my memory, so I just wanted to record an episode talking about some of the lessons that I've taken away from this class just because I think that they're super interesting and can apply to everybody's life. So far, we've covered two main topics in the class, which are setting and pursuing goals and then developing expertise as well. And both of these sections of the course are accompanied by a required reading. So we have three books that we are required to read rather than just one long, boring textbook. So for the first section of the course, which is about setting and pursuing goals, we are required to read a book called Succeed, How We Can Reach Our Goals by Heidi Grant Halverson, and then for the second part of the course, it's Peak by Anders Ericsson. And the required reading for the third part of the course is Why We Do What We Do by Edward Dacey, but we haven't gotten to that yet, so in this episode, I'm just going to be talking about the two parts of the course that I've already done before the midterm. So for the first part of the course, which was about setting and pursuing goals, it was super applicable just because we started in January and obviously everybody likes to set New Year's resolutions. So the first lecture that we had was actually about why people are so bad at keeping up with their New Year's resolutions and why people fail at their goals. So from what I've learned, I would say that the three main reasons that most people fail at their New Year's resolutions is because their goals are too vague, they set too many goals, or they have no faith that they can even achieve their goals. So to avoid this, it is important to be as specific as possible. So you want to break down your goals into specific manageable steps that you can monitor as you go along. And Professor Kessner really recommends setting SMART goals, which I know a lot of people have heard of, but if you haven't, it stands for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Realistic, and Time-Framed. And setting this type of goal will help to increase your chances of succeeding by a lot. It's also important to not set too many goals. I think this is one thing that's very common when you have New Year's resolutions. Even for me growing up, I always set five to 10 resolutions that I wanted to complete, but this actually doesn't work because self-control is a limited resource that you can exhaust and that's really the theory of ego depletion and it's been tested in so many different studies where people who have depleted their self-control by doing a strenuous task in later activities that require self-control they're unable to perform as well as those who haven't been depleted. So basically your self-control is like a muscle that can get fatigued and it requires rest and recovery afterwards. So knowing this, Professor Kessner recommends setting only one to two goals at a time. Another super effective trick that is scientifically backed is the creation of implementation plans, which detail when, where, and how you'll be achieving your goal. 
In her book Succeed, Grant Halverson recommends creating these in an if-then manner so that you can create links between cues and behaviors in your brain. So for example, if your goal is to do well in a certain class and you need to study for an exam, what you can do is take five minutes out of your day to write down your implementation plan in an if-then manner. So for example, you can write if it is Monday at 8 p.m., then I will study for four hours. And so you create these links in your brain between Monday at 8 p.m. and studying for your exam. This method of just taking five minutes out of your day to write down an implementation plan of these if-then statements has proved incredibly effective in a wide variety of studies on a wide variety of different types of goals. So from people who are trying to lose weight to people who are trying to study and any goal in between, it has shown that these implementation plans increase the likelihood of goal success significantly. Another important piece of advice for succeeding at your goals is to believe that you can succeed, but not that it will be easy. A lot of self-help books will just push the idea of just believing that you can succeed and that's all you need and to just stay optimistic, but this course has really pushed the idea that you do need to be optimistic, but also realistic when it comes to the challenges that you're going to face. So one of the concepts that they really emphasize is the idea of mental contrasting, which is essentially imagining what it will feel like when you achieve your goal, but then imagining everything that's going to stand in your way. So if your goal is to get a job after university and that's what you're working towards, you want to picture what it will be like to achieve your goal of getting a job at one of the top firms, but then also think about exactly what's going to stop you from getting there. So in this case, probably all of the other amazing candidates that you're up against. You can also boost your self-efficacy, which is the belief that you can achieve your goals, by writing about a similar goal that you've already achieved, someone similar to yourself that's achieved the same goal that you have, and an individual who can encourage you in your pursuit. Aside from these tips of how to set your goals and how to succeed at your goals, we also learned about setting the right goals and setting goals that will actually make you happy. And to do this, you have to set goals that fulfill your three basic psychological needs, which are detailed in this self-determination theory and include relatedness, which is the need to feel meaningfully connected to other people competence, the need to feel that you can do things well or at least improve in your abilities, and autonomy, the need to feel that you own and agree with your own behaviors. And this last need of autonomy is something that we discuss in depth throughout the course. Just because when it comes to goal setting, autonomy can play a huge part in whether or not you succeed at it and how likely you are to give up. So when we talk about personal goals, it's important to distinguish between truly autonomous goals and what we call controlled goals. So even when you set a goal that you do consider a personal goal, it's not always autonomous if it's driven by external pressure. So for example, when you think of your goal, are you thinking that you want to do something or you have to do something? So in the case of academics, it's very likely that people will have the goal of doing well in school, but are you doing well in school because it aligns with your interests and values 
or are you wanting to do well in school because that's the pressure that's being put on you either by your parents or by society or any external pressure. When you feel that your goals are truly autonomous, you benefit from intrinsic motivation, which is the best type of motivation, and it leads not only to more goal progress, but a wide range of other benefits like more enjoyment, more interest, more creativity, deeper information processing, and more persistence in the face of difficulty. And this type of motivation comes from when we are motivated by our own desires rather than feeling pressured by anything or anyone. And it can actually be enhanced whenever we are allowed to make our own choices or even when we're just feeling like we're making our own choices. So one study that tested the illusion of choice on intrinsic motivation was done on young students who were learning how to do math through a computerized video game and how they did this study was essentially they had students who were all given the same goal of improving their math skills using this platform and for some of the students they were allowed to choose their own characters on the video game and they actually found that those students who were given that feeling of choice at the beginning of the game actually outperformed the other students who weren't given a choice significantly. So that study shows that even when you aren't given a choice of your goal necessarily, you can still reap the benefits of intrinsic motivation by creating the illusion of choice, whether that's for yourself or for other people. And on that same note, we also learned a lot about the interpersonal aspects of goal pursuit and the support that we can get from other people and what kinds of support are the most beneficial. So in our course, we distinguish between autonomy support and directive support. So directive support is more so direct guidance in your goal while autonomy support is more so just taking an empathetic and perspective-taking approach to supporting somebody else's goal, and it's not necessarily direct encouragement towards their goal, but just providing moral support and empathy during the challenging parts of their goal pursuit. And studies have found that autonomy support, not directive support, is actually much more beneficial when it comes to goal progress. So next time a friend comes to you in search of help and support while they're pursuing a goal, rather than helping them directly solve their problems or reminding them of their goals or emphasizing the importance of reaching their goals, it's actually much more beneficial to just listen to how they want to handle their goal, try to understand how they see things with respect to their goals, convey your confidence in their ability, and just accept them whether or not they reach their goals. And this has been found to be especially important and significant when it comes to parent-child relationships. For peer relationships, yes, autonomy support is definitely beneficial and does lead to more goal progress, but Kessner studies have actually found that in the parent-child relationship, parental autonomy support actually leads to higher subjective well-being, which is another way to say happiness. So not only are children who have autonomy supportive parents and empathetic parents more likely to succeed at their goals, they're also more likely to be happier from it because they're being able to satisfy that need for autonomy. 
Anyways, those are just some takeaways from the first section of the course about setting goals and pursuing goals. But moving on to the second section of the course, which was about developing expertise, we looked a lot at Anders Ericsson's theories because they're quite controversial and they don't agree with a lot of what society believes. To put it briefly, Ericsson believes that natural ability doesn't actually play a role in expert performance and instead believes that it is all effort and hard work. In his book, Peak, he talks about how the gift that we often attribute to these expert performers is not actually their gift of natural ability and natural talent, but rather just the ability of our brain and our bodies to be incredibly adaptable, which these expert performers have taken advantage of, but we as average Joes have not. So obviously this is very controversial and definitely goes against the grain of what society typically believes, especially in North America. We love to look at these expert performers in all types of areas, whether that's sports or music or chess masters or anything, and believe that they are able to do what they do because of a special innate gift. But throughout his book, Anders Ericsson pretty much points out all of these different examples of expert performers and demonstrate that it wasn't innate ability that got them to where they were, but just pure hard work. I would highly recommend reading the book, but just as his first example, he talks about Mozart, who was seen as this child prodigy who was born with this innate gift of playing piano, but what Erickson claims is that when you look deeper into the lives of these so-called child prodigies and experts, you can see common patterns that don't actually suggest natural ability, but rather incredible amounts of hard work. So for Mozart, what he said is that his father, who was like a failed musician in a way, he really wanted his son to become a child prodigy or just an incredible piano player. And so Mozart was exposed to the piano at a very, very young age, and then he was able to accumulate thousands and thousands of hours of piano practice during his childhood, which is what actually contributed to his expert performance at a young age. And this is described by Erickson's monotonic benefits assumption, which is his theory that expert performance is a direct function of deliberate practice. And deliberate practice is a special training method that he coined, and it's characterized by having a specific goal, being intensely focused during that time, getting immediate feedback, as well as being consistently pushed outside of your comfort zone and challenged. So for this type of practice, he actually requires that it is in a well-developed field that has very specific standards, for example, in music or sports or chess, and expert instruction in that field is also required. So this type of practice that he describes is different from what he calls naive practice, which is basically just doing the same activity over and over again and just expecting that that repetition is going to bring improvement, which is definitely a mistake that I've made. Erickson suggests that deliberate practice leads to improvement and expert performance because it allows you to develop mental representations and to sharpen them over time. And a mental representation is a pre-existing pattern of information, whether that's a fact, image, rule, or relationship 
that is held in your long-term memory and can be used to respond quickly and effectively in certain situations. So one example that they gave of this is when chess masters are able to play blindfold chess by just holding all of these pieces in their memory. This is because of mental representations that they have created in their mind and they've refined over time. And they were able to test that this was specific to chess only and not just a better memory in general because they actually tested chess masters by showing them a chess board of certain pieces and asking them to memorize it. And in one condition, they were memorizing normal chess boards where the pieces were arranged in a logical order and position that would make sense in the game. But in the other condition, they were asked to memorize a chess board where the pieces are in an illogical position that wouldn't actually happen in a real game. And they found that they were only able to memorize the chess boards well when they made logical sense. And when they didn't make logical sense, they had the same memory as any other person. So it just shows that these mental representations are very specific to the domain that you're in and the activity that you're becoming an expert in. So obviously there have been a lot of challenges to Erickson's theory because we've all been brought up to believe in this idea of natural ability and to believe that certain people are more gifted than others in certain domains. And I definitely didn't believe in a lot of what Erickson's theory was about at the beginning when Kessner first introduced it in the class, but over time and after reading about the studies that Erickson's done and the evidence that's out there, I definitely see its validity more, but I'm still not entirely convinced. Some of the main challenges to Erickson's theory that have been proposed include the presence of child prodigies, which I mentioned earlier. Erickson's approach to child prodigies is essentially just having an alternate explanation for how they got so many hours of practice in at a young age. So for example, with Mozart or with Tiger Woods, they were performing very well at very young ages, but when you look deeper into their story, you can see that they had a parent who was an expert, and thus they were getting that training and deliberate practice since an incredibly young age. Another common challenge that is proposed is with what they call savants, which are people who have low IQ or are on the autism spectrum who have these incredible talents in certain areas, whether that's with music or art or being able to know what day of the week some random date was. And from Erickson's research, his response to this challenge is pretty much that these savants are people who have very obsessive personalities, and because of that quality, they actually are getting incredible amounts of that deliberate practice just from how much they think about it in their minds and obsess over it. So both books, Succeed and Peak, push this idea that really changed how I viewed the world in my mindset towards learning, which is the idea of implicit theories and essentially our beliefs about intelligence and personality and all of these different traits. I've always been a big believer in what they call the entity theory, which is essentially that you are born with a certain amount of intelligence and there's nothing that you can do to change that. 
And what I've learned from these books, especially from Succeed on this topic, is that this causes people to be overly concerned with self-validation and how you're being seen by other people, which is definitely something that I have struggled with in my life. And this is a very common view, especially in the West and in North America specifically. But when we look at the East and in Asia, we see a different mindset, which is more focused on effort over ability. And this difference in mentality really explains why Asian students are outperforming Western students consistently, because the Western mindset is that we are all born with a certain amount of potential and we can only live up to that potential. And if we don't live up to that potential and when we fail, this causes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you screw up and then you believe that you don't have what it takes and then you stop trying, which dooms you to fail. And then that just reinforces your belief that you didn't have what it takes to begin with. But for people who believe in the incremental theory or a growth mindset, they don't fall into this mistake of giving up too soon because they don't see their failure in terms of being innately bad at something. They just see it as a bump in the road in their progress, which pushes them to take action to improve and to fix the problem rather than just give up. So for me in my life, I've always had this entity theory when it comes to intelligence because as a child, I was always told that I was smart and I always believed that I was innately born with this intelligence because my parents were very smart themselves. But after looking at the research, what I've learned from this course is that this intelligence, even though IQ and intelligence is genetic to a certain degree, a lot of it is actually shaped by your experience and your environment. So intelligent parents are more likely to have intelligent children because they're providing that environment for them to learn and they are more focused on academics because they themselves typically have a higher level of education. So when I look back on my childhood, I can see this evidence of this environment that my parents created because there is a high emphasis on education and academics in my house. And I remember doing workbooks over the summer and a lot of learning outside of school, which according to Erickson's theory would count as deliberate practice. And that is probably how he would explain my intelligence based on effort rather than innate ability. But going back to the fixed mindset or the entity theory of intelligence, this mindset really made me connect my intelligence with my sense of self-worth which definitely motivated me to study hard in order to live up to my own expectations and the expectations of others. But the downside of this mentality is really when it comes to failure and not being able to react well to it. So having this mindset pushed me to set what Grant Halverson calls be good performance goals rather than get better mastery goals. And this type of goal leads you to become overly concerned with self-validation, which was definitely something that I encountered, especially when it came to doing well in school. I was always just trying to get an A or to be the top of my class rather than actually improve my skills and to be able to actually learn. And so whenever I encountered challenges or perceived failures in my goal pursuit, 
this would cause me to get into that self-fulfilling prophecy mindset that I mentioned earlier, where, for example, when I was in high school and math started becoming more difficult, I believed that because I wasn't performing as well as I expected myself to and compared to other people, that meant that I was just not good at math. And as a result, I kind of just gave up on trying as hard and I started to internalize that and believe that I was bad at math and that math just wasn't the subject for me and I carried that into university as well. But after taking this course and kind of reflecting on that, I've made more of an effort to not have that same mentality and believe that I'm bad at math necessarily and that if I really tried and put effort into it, I could improve my skills for sure, but now I've taken more of an approach that I just don't enjoy doing math. But I've also seen the evidence of this same mentality in a wide variety of areas in my life. For example, when it came to music and playing piano when I was younger, I had taken lessons since I was in first grade. But when I was taking those lessons, I did not enjoy doing the practice at all. And because I subscribe to what is called the inverse effort rule, which is essentially the belief that if you find something difficult, then you're not good at it. Because I found playing piano and practicing for piano very tedious and difficult, I just assumed that I was not good at it and so I quit prematurely. But now knowing this information, I know that if I were to have continued playing piano back then, I would have been able to improve my skills by a lot. I just didn't want to put the effort in. And unfortunately, I've seen this exact same effect in so many areas, especially when I reflect on my childhood and think about all of the things that I've quit over the years, like swimming and skating and guitar lessons and just all of these areas that I've quit at because I just thought that it was too difficult, which meant that I couldn't ever be good at them. So I just really wish that I had the knowledge I have now about fixed and growth mindsets back then so that I could have actually continued to practice and actually improved and possibly have been really good at any of those activities but because I didn't I will never know how good I could have become. So now after reading both of these books I do really want to put what I've learned into practice and to seek out a new goal or a new activity or skill that I want to develop using the tricks that I've learned from both of these books and I've been considering maybe taking on a new language so I've been doing a lot of research about polyglots and whatnot on YouTube, but we'll see how that goes. But anyways, I think this has been the biggest takeaway from this entire course is just shifting my mindset from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset which allows me to break free from those limitations that the fixed mindset has on people in that you have to live up to this potential that you were born with and instead focusing on being able to cultivate your potential by pushing yourself to work harder and to implement the tricks laid out in Erickson's book to be able to do that as effectively as possible. So those are kind of the key takeaways that I've taken from my course so far. I would highly recommend reading both Succeed and Peak. I think that they're both really incredible books and I'm really glad that this course has forced me to read those because they have very insightful 
and scientifically backed claims that can be directly applied to your everyday life. If you made it all the way to the end of this episode, thank you so much for listening. And if you have any questions or comments, you can feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at the Dim Sum Diaries podcast. It is now midnight, so I have to get to bed, but I will catch you in another episode. Bye!